All right, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Tyler Gillum, and uh, today we're going to be going over uh, the period of time that we call kind of the, be the, the real beginning of the Reformation. So before we get started, let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get going. Father, we thank you so much for the time that we have to come and gather here together as a church to learn about the way that you've worked throughout church history. We ask that you be glorified and that we are in awe of your wisdom. And Lord, know that sometimes things may look ugly, but that you purpose them for good. So Father, we ask that you please bless this time, give us clarity and understanding. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so I'd like to start this with asking a quick question. Is the Reformation over? Mark Knoll posed this question in his book of the same name, and he makes the point, he says, we live in a really hostile and secular world, and uh, we should have, you would think, a united front if we want to have stand any chance of uh, remaining, or passing down our, our faith. I mean, us and Catholics have the same view about theology, or a lot, a lot of things about the ascension of Christ, about the incarnation, about the Trinity, and morality, we agree on what gender, marriage, uh, human rights are. And it's been 500 years. Shouldn't we be able to just move on past this? Didn't Christ pray for unity in the church in John 17? And the main issue that we face is not dividing the church, but dividing the church over the wrong things. We, you, uh, you're going to see in this lesson that the key center of the Reformation was the authority of the Scriptures. Is where where do we put God's word in in comparison to councils or the Pope? And the the, the quote the Scriptures are the true center of Christian union is kind of been called the formal principle of the Reformation. The problem of the Reformation time was and today that the Church of Rome requires, some pe requires people to believe what's not explicitly taught in Scripture. And the, uh, the bishops of Rome's claim of supreme authority was one of the greatest causes of division in church history. We learned about that last week with Colton and how we saw their authority grow over time. So I want to just talk about a few things that were leading up to the men like Luther and Zwingli. Uh, there was this movement that Colton spoke about last week called conciliarism. Basically, it was, a re it was in response to seeing the authority of the Bishop of Rome grow throughout the medieval church. And there's that one point, it was so messed up, we have something called the Western Schism, where there was three people claiming to be the Pope all at once, and all of them had authority to excommunicate one another. And so uh, the kings of Europe and Emperor Sigismund, they had enough, and so they called something called the Council of Constance. The Council of Constance was basically a huge vote of no confidence for the papal office. And so what it did was it set limits on authority. It set limits on how many family members you could appoint to church office. It demanded that councils are held at regular intervals uh, in order to keep the popes in check because they couldn't be trusted to uh, keep their affairs in order. And then shortly after, the Council of Basel declared that councils had supreme authority over the pope. So that sounds... Like it's moving in the right direction, right? You've got, okay, we're going to set up these blocks to keep people, people in check, this checks and balances system. But 
over time, popes forgot to call these councils, and their authority began to grow again, and then you had cardinals who would basically papal apologists for their authority, saying, uh, going around giving reasons for why the pope should have more authority and should be higher than a council. But still, these were small embers of the Reformation that were happening. You could see this, this, uh, this, this movement toward change that, uh, that was happening in the church. Uh, men like uh, John Hus and uh, John Wycliffe definitely fit into this tradition that we spoke about last week. And eventually, when councils were held, popes really began to fear them because it limited their power and it basically kept them in check. And then another movement that was happening at the time in response to like the moral and cultural decay was something called humanism. Um, this basically, they saw that the solution to all our issues was going back to the wisdom of the Greeks and the political uh, wisdom of the Romans. They longed for a time to go back to the way things used to be. And uh, the, 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 kind of the, the forefront of this movement was a man named Desiderius Erasmus. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Does that sound right? Okay. Um, he was a Catholic priest and scholar. He, uh, he hated the immorality and the abuse in the church, but whereas some reformers were seeking to reform a little differently, he was trying to do it from, from inside and just point the church back to a morality. Now, uh, his greatest Reformation contribution was that he translated the uh, Latin Vulgate from Jerome in 382 that was riddled with errors, uh, translated it back to the Greek New Testament, or translated to the Greek New Testament. Um, and that was uh, like an example of uh, some of the errors that could have been like, well, instead of, in Mark 115, instead of the word repent, there was the word do penance. You can see how that can be taken. So you had this almost miscommunication as well as misunderstanding. And so that's what Erasmus was seeking to do, was to give a better, more accurate translation that everybody could understand. And so once the Bible was readable to everybody, it started to take the world by storm. And there were two young priests who acquired copies of this, and their names were Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli. I want to start with Martin Luther. Uh, he was born in Eiselban on November 10th, uh, 1483, the son of Hans and Margaret Luther. His dad was a uh, kind of a wealthy miner. He was still a man of the common people, but they had, they had money. Um, and he hoped that Luther would actually leave the world of manual labor. He wanted to become a lawyer. And so I think you're going to see something about Luther is that it seems like whenever he sets his mind to something, he is full tilt, 100 miles per hour, no matter what he's doing. And we're going to see that throughout his life. So he attended the University of Erfurt <coughs> and was trained to become a lawyer. Well, when he was 21, he was traveling, and he was out in the countryside, and a, I'm sure a lot of us heard the story, a massive storm came, a huge thunderstorm, and he was terrified. He thought he was going to die. And so he called out to uh, St. Anne to save him. St. Anne was the patron saint of miners, and he's, he made an oath. Basically, you save me, I'll become a monk. Now, everybody's made a, a plea like that in some instance of their life. Most of us don't follow through with it, not Martin Luther. 
this guy's an extremist. <laughs> uh, so he followed through with his oath in 1505, much to his parents' chagrin, and he entered the Augustinian order in Erfurt. Now, monks in those days, they're, I mean, you could kind of compare it to which, what we see like modern-day monks in, in Far East Asia, but they were, uh, they devote, they were devoted to prayer, fasting, works, and doing things to their bodies that, I mean, I, don't, I just don't get it. I don't get where the, where the, the self-discipline comes from, possibly just a, a desire to justify yourself. But anyway, Luther became, in his words, a monk's monk. He said, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. <laughs> he, was, he was devoted to the most rigorous forms of prayer and fasting and works. And he was still racked with guilt from this Roman penitential system that he was under that included confession, penance, and good works. Uh, he quoted, he's quoted as saying, I tortured myself with prayer, fasting, vigils, and this one I'm not, under, I don't understand, and, and, and freezing cold. The cold alone could have killed me. It caused me pain such as I will never inflict on myself again. And at this time, if Luther could have ever believed that God was not angry with him, he would have like stood on his head. He, that's, that's what his, all this was about, that he was just basically under God's wrath. And he, he said he was suffering from something called anfektungen, or religious dread. He's, he was seeing, which is, this is, a, this is right, that we can see God's transcendent holiness in comparison to our sin. And the right reaction to that outside of Christ is dread because we, we have no right to come to God and we know that we, he owes us only judgment. But, um, so anyway, this all came to a head in May of 1507. Uh, Luther was asked to say his first mass, or to give his first mass as a, uh, as a priest. And he gets up there and he's shaking and he's trembling as he's saying the words of consecration, because he believed, at, as in the Catholic Church, they believe in transubstantiation. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. I think Colton talked about it last week, too. Whereas they believe that the bread and wine truly become the body and blood of Christ. And so he's sitting there, and he's doing the adoration. You can imagine him just freaking out. I mean, he's, he spends his, all of his time trying to make up his sins to God with penance and good works, and now he's holding what he believes to be the body and blood of Christ. And so, but he had a, uh, so that went through. I mean, it happened. Not a whole lot more about that. But in 1510, so a few years later, he was asked to go to Rome on monastery business. Now, this was like, kind of as, as a Muslim would be excited about being asked to go to Mecca. This is kind of like, he gets to go on this pilgrimage to Rome and see all these holy sites and impart upon himself all these uh, blessings or have all these blessings imparted on him. And as he goes to Rome, he sees that the, what he had in his mind as this spiritual place had actually become a marketplace where masses were sold like bread. You could walk up. There was a church that even had two priests at the same time because they had so many customers coming through to get masses said for them that they, would, they had two priests doing it at the same exact time. And, and Luther saw this like, this is, this is vain. Like, there's no depth or spirituality or love for Christ or devotion at any of this. And so there were seeds of doubt were sown. 
Now, Luther's um, friend and mentor, uh, Johann van Staupitz, had suggested that Luther go and earn his doctorate and teach theology. And so Luther did. And he became a professor at the University of Wittenberg. Um, now, in these days, uh, theology professors, they, they lectured on books of the Bible. That's what, the, that's what the study of theology was. And so Luther began to teach through the Psalms and then through the epistle to the Romans. And you can see God's, uh, you can see God's, God's work through bringing him through the Psalms and seeing the ways that Christ is pictured in the Psalms, uh, suffering for us, and then going into, the, going into Romans and learning about God's righteousness, but also his grace. Uh, and Luther had Erasmus's Greek New Testament, so he was able to finally, through prayer and rigorous study, begin to understand what the gospel truly was. And he wrote, this is kind of long, but I thought it was, he said, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. Because I took it to mean that justice, whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust, my situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. So, I mean, you can see in that Luther finally understood the gospel. And if, if you've had a moment like that where you're like, you're, you're trying to either assuage God with your good works or you just don't know where to turn, when you finally see that like the righteousness of God is to be received by faith and you really understand it, it's, it really is a life-changing thing. And so... Obviously, for Luther, it was. And then he began to teach uh, through Galatians after that, and his convictions were just strengthened. So at this time, the Roman Catholic Church uh, was involved in something called indulgences. Now, they distinguished, Colton talked about this last week, they distinguished between basically two types of sins. You had venial sins and mortal sins. And uh, mortal sins, if they were unconfessed at the time of death, you would go straight to hell. Whereas venial sins you would be purged of these sins in purgatory. And indulgences were sold as a way to shorten your time or the time of a loved one in purgatory. But in reality, they were being sold as a way to raise money for St. Peter's Basilica. And uh, a lot of Germans saw this. Like Luther wasn't the only one to to be upset about this. They saw that basically they were getting, the the Roman Catholic Church was getting money from from, from all throughout Europe for their own things. Well, um, and then eventually Pope Leo X said that these indulgences are actually able to offer perfect remission of all sins so that you could be restored to a state of complete innocence like you were in your baptism. 
And eventually this was all way too much for Luther. He couldn't do it anymore. And so he had to say something. And October 31st, 1517, he nailed his 95 theses to the castle church doors in, in Wittenberg. Now, he wasn't trying to start some big movement with, the 90, with his 95 theses. He was bringing up important questions. He, didn't even, he wasn't even sure where he stood on all of these that he mentioned. But he was trying to bring up important questions about the sale of indulgences that, a lot of, like I said, a lot of the people in that, uh, that region were unhappy with. Two of them that are on here, uh, thesis number 27, is they preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. And thesis number 45, Christians are to be taught that he who sees a needy man and passes him by, yet gives his money for indulgences, does not buy papal indulgences, but God's wrath. So he was trying to get to the, the heart of the matter. But without Luther's knowledge, uh, these 95 theses were translated into German, and they spread like wildfire. The printing press was going on at that time. Uh, oh, by the way, like we got to go to the Museum of the Bible recently, and they have a, a Gutenberg printing press in there, and that's a massive deal. It's pretty cool, but still, this was not like our printers. This was, I mean, I watched the guy make a page, and it's pretty slow. I mean, you're putting in letter by letter, and you get to do it one time. Well, you, I mean, you can print the same page a lot, but... It, it, it's not as fast, but it's still faster than everybody writing it down. So having the printing press uh, was a huge, almost a, you could see like God's sovereignty working in this time of like technology. And so soon Luther was at the very center of like a very a theological and a political firestorm. There was, he, he had, his 95 Theses had brought in, had brought up a lot of things and made a lot of people mad. So he was given opportunities to defend or clarify his statements in uh, Heidelberg in 1518, then in Leipzig in 1519, and then finally he was summoned to the imperial court at Worms in 1521. Now, Luther had been promised safe passage to Worms. Worms uh, it says Worms, but I think it's Worms. <laughs> Germans, they odd people. Well, uh, so, but... Uh, he was promised safe passage, but that really didn't have a lot of comfort to him because uh, Jan Hus was also promised this several years before and was burned at the stake. <laughs> I think Colton talked about him last week, too. So he gets there on April 17th, and at 4 p.m., he enters into the bishop's court. And uh, Johann Eck basically asked two simple questions. He said, do you, Martin Luther, recognize the books published under your name as your own? And number two, are you prepared to recant what you've written in the books? And Luther said he admitted the books were his, and he even went so far to say that he's written more and that he needed time to think over his response. And so he spent that evening in deep prayer and reflection. And uh, I want to mention what else he said. He said that the books were his, and then he responded by asking for more time, saying, this touches God and his word. This affects the salvation of souls. Of this, Christ said, he who denies me before men, him will I deny before my Father. To say too little or too much would be dangerous, and I beg you, give me time to think it over. And so they did. And um, when he came in the next day, and Luther was asked the same questions, here's how he responded. He said, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God, I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against 
conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. So, in a movie, that'd be like, everybody would clap, and they're like, okay, and everybody would see it. That's not what happened. He was condemned a heretic, <laughs> and uh, a lot of people wanted him dead. But thanks to Prince Frederick, who was his ally, and who uh, I think, I couldn't find a whole lot about it, but I think he was pretty agreeable to Luther. He, uh, he provided protection for him in, the, uh, in his castle. Now, at this time, Luther uh, spent a lot of time reading. He spent a lot of time writing. Um, as well as he was in some serious spiritual warfare. And so he, he developed a strong hatred for Satan at this time. I mean, you can look up some of the stuff about what his conversations uh, at, in the deep of night when he was having this uh, lack of assurance of God's love for him. And he was convinced, like, this is only from Satan. And he would, like, yell at him. So he, was, uh, he wasn't messing around. Like, like I said, the man's an extremist. He's full tilt. Well, and so through this, I hope you saw that his main issue with the Roman Catholic Church was the authority of Scripture. That's what it all boiled down to, is who's really in charge here? Is it the Pope? Is it councils? Or is it the Word of God? Is God in charge of his church? Is Christ king or is he not? And he could not depend on the Pope to deliver the truth. So, and then uh, Luther lived a relatively, for that time, long life and passed away. Uh, I think, I can't remember how he was. He was like in his 60s, I can't remember. Anyway, but that's pretty long for that time. Um, or maybe 50s. Now, the second guy I want to talk to, talk, talk about is uh, Ulrich Zwingli. He's not as well known as Luther. There's not a whole lot of movies made about him, whereas there were about Luther, <laughs> uh, or documentaries. But um, basically, Zwingli was Luther's contemporary in Zurich, Switzerland. Now, he's known for being the reformer of, Switch, uh, of, of Zurich. And uh, in the pro- like, if, if Martin Luther is the father of the Protestant movement, Zwingli is the father of the, re- the reformed movement within Protestantism. And so he was born on New Year's Day in 1484, and that's only six weeks after Luther. So, I mean, these guys were neck and neck their whole life as far as the time span in which they lived. But Zwingli was educated in what we talked about earlier, the humanist tradition. And they longed to go back to that golden age. And uh, he was a devotee of Erasmus that we spoke about earlier. He, and Erasmus was his mentor and his friend. And so he attended the University of Vienna and then the University of Basel, and at 22 became an ordained priest at Glarus and then at Einseldown. And Zwingli, um, he, he also at the same time began to really devote himself to the scriptures whenever he was able to get his close friend Erasmus's Greek New Testament. And so he devoted himself entirely to the scriptures, and he wanted to set aside philosophy and theology. So remember the, the humanist tradition they wanted to go back to this time of uh, like Arist- Aristotelian type uh, philosophy, or um, and so, but he, God showed him that he needs to set aside this worldly understanding of philosophy and theology and be taught directly from the Word of God alone. And he's quoted as saying, "Before anyone among us had heard the name of Luther, I had begun in 1516 to preach the gospel of Christ." When I entered the pulpit, I did not preach the words of the gospel lesson appointed for the Mass that morning, 
but rather from the biblical text alone. So uh, shortly after, he was called to be the people's priest at the great minister church in Zurich at uh, age 35. And so for the 12 years that he was the minister there, Zurich transformed into a Protestant city. But it wasn't overnight, and that was by design. So Zwingli's ministry is characterized by three main things. He had expositional preaching, patient reformation work, and gospel partnerships. Now on the, on the preaching front, he began his uh, preaching through the gospel of Matthew, and he insisted on returning to something, an ancient form of lecturing called, when y'all correct me, Lectio Continua, is that right? Give me a Latin degree, man. <laughs> uh, basically, it means continuous reading. That's from his humanist thinking. He wanted to go back to this, this old way of doing things. Therefore, I guess I'm not super familiar with the way they did it back then. But it doesn't seem like they were just reading through books of the Bible like we do here at our church. And so basically, he started in Matthew and went through the entire New Testament. And uh, he wasn't going up there and doing what was uh, part of the liturgical calendar. He'd get up there, he wouldn't bring any notes, he would bring his Bible, and he would preach for hours. And so he insisted on the simplicity of skill, I mean simplicity over skill in his preaching. And uh, he was big on meeting on Sundays rather than just going to meeting on the church holidays. And this is kind of a, uh, this was different. He wanted everybody to be able to attend. He wanted everybody to come and hear the word of God preached. So his big, he, was, he was big on meeting on Sundays. Um, and obviously his main concern was that Christ is supreme and he wanted to pull everybody away from these created things that they had their hope in. And he wanted to call the flock toward uh, the, the one true and living God and his son Jesus. So um, he, of all the reformers, recorded, he is the one who spoke most frequently about the fullness of joy and satisfaction in Christ. Kind of like our modern day John Piper, who's big on <laughs> that movement of Christian hedonism. I'm sure a lot of his uh, thinking has roots in Zwingli. Now, another um, attribute of Zwingli's work is that he was patient in his Reformation work. He said... Um, it's quoted as saying, Behold the grandeur of the Christian shepherd. He feeds the flock with painstaking watchfulness and does not constrain except as far as the word itself constrains. Zwingli was not, like, whereas Luther was, like, full tilt, Zwingli was patient. He wasn't in a hurry. He wasn't going to force the Reformation to happen. He trusted God's word to accomplish what it was going to accomplish. And so the two main things that were needing reforming, needed, needed reforming, in uh, Zurich were the removal of the mass and icons from worship. Now, he wanted, the, he wanted them gone, but he didn't want them gone overnight. He didn't want to, for the sake of the conscience of weaker brethren. And this earns wingly enemies, not just from the Catholic Church, but actually from the rural pastors, the Anabaptists, people who wanted it like right then, immediate, no delay, get it all out of here, we're done with it. But eventually Zwingli's approach won out and um, the Zurich City Council actually agreed to remove all images from their churches. So you can see that patience was a virtue for Zwingli. He wasn't trying to push things to a head, and then you know you have some type of conflict. He was wanting to work it out over time. 
And one more uh, attribute of Zwingli's life and ministry were his partnerships with his friends. He was in a very close group of humanist reformers, Protestant reformers that were of the, of, of the tradition of Erasmus. And his closest friend was a man named Leo Judd. Leo Judd would write letters for him. He would preach in his absence when he wasn't there. He would defend him after his death. The guy would even read books for Zwingli because they had so much going on, and he would give him a, a cliff, basically the cliff notes of the book. And uh, he also maintained close friendships with a lot of important men in the key cities during the Reformation. They would support him in his, his ventures, and they would, he would support them in theirs. Now, there is one man that he never, that he tragically failed to have a friendship with, Martin Luther. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you could say that their personalities probably weren't very similar. They probably wasn't, it wasn't easy for them to get along anyway. Um, a lot of things led to them not getting along well. Language, I mean, uh, culture, ge- geographical differences, all those things are that. But the main thing that you can, that neither one of them could look past was their view of the Lord's Supper. Now, both men rejected transubstantiation, what's taught by the Catholic Church, that's saying that the Eucharist is an actual sacrifice that, adore, that, it, or that, in, that imparts righteousness uh, every week, or that the adoring of the bread is actually the body of Christ when the priest announces, this is my body. But they did, not, they did not see things completely eye to eye. Luther held to something called consubstantiation, and it's a view that says that the body and blood of Christ are actually but mysteriously present in, with, and under the bread and the wine. Now, whereas Zwingli believed in something called the memorial view, which I think is the more prevalent view in our region, is that um, believe that when they say he believes that when the scripture says the is and this is my body, it's best interpreted as represents. Now, and Zwingli held that eating and drinking Christ meant to believe to have faith, and he used this phrase. I need to know the Latin. Help. Idire credire, idire credire. I don't. Basically, what it means to eat is to believe. So, um, now, the uh, German Prince Philip of Hesse wanted Luther and Zwingli to get along. He wanted a united Protestant front. They wanted, he wanted them to have an agreement. He, think that he, uh, he believed that they would have a greater chance of big cultural change and moving away from the Catholic Church if they could just get along. So he called something called, that's called the Marburg uh, Colloquy. Uh, in October of 1529. Now, uh, it was not just Zwingli and Luther. A lot of Zwingli's buddies were there, the ones that were key men of the Reformation during this time. Um, but, and so they got together, and they had agreed on 14 out of 15 doctrinal points, the one being the Lord's Supper. They could not get along, and they, they departed, and there would be no united Protestantism. So, uh, now Zwingli, uh, as a young man, I didn't mention this before, Zwingli was a chaplain in the military, of the Swiss military. And even, I mean, you, even today, the, uh, the Pope's bodyguards, what are they called, the Swiss Guard? Is that what they're called? I mean, this goes way back to then when the Pope was using uh, the Swiss army or contractors or mercenaries or whatever to um, protect him and uh, protect his interests or to go take something. <laughs> but um, so Zwingli was part of that, younger, but in his older age, he ended up as a chaplain leading a very poorly equipped army of Zurich 
to defend itself against surprise attack from neighboring Swiss uh, states. And during that battle, tragically, Zwingli was killed, and he was 47 years old. Now, um, despite his untimely death, his life shows what transformation can take place with faithful preaching, with patience, and with being a good friend and working together. For the, uh, that can, you can see the change that happened in this, what, first in the church, then in their city, and their country, and then ultimately the whole entire culture. So God will reign. God will have his his purposes accomplished and maybe this was good for me just to hear that maybe I don't need to always be in a hurry for something like that because you can see that God works in his own timing and so and even after this Zurich became a hub of safety for reformers and uh, a place for education uh, for reformers and exiles all over the world and all over Europe and it became a model of a truly reformed church and the city and the world over and we're going to I think Ryan's going to pick up there next week, whereas uh, we talk about John Calvin and a few more. And so, let's. Uh, I told you all this. Did I? Oh yeah, dude. We got plenty of time to conversate. <laughs> let's uh, let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you. We thank you for showing us the ways in which you work through history to accomplish your purposes, to show us the light of the gospel in the face of overwhelming systems that would want to suppress this. You show that you are king, you are on your throne, and that your will will be done. We ask that you be with us this morning, Lord, that you be glorified, that our worship be acceptable and honorable to you, Lord, and that um, as we go home today and this week, that we'll have our minds renewed and with a desire to please you, to live for you, to glorify you, to commune with you. And we ask these things in Christ's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.